again, like I said, verse 20. And um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right into it. So let's pray. Father, um, I pray for all of us that we would quiet our inner person before you, our minds and our hearts. Lord, I know that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt everything that's going on in each of our lives, individually and personally. The highs and the lows, Lord, the, the good things from this last week, the difficult things from this last week, things that um, are burdening us from the past and things that we may even be looking forward to in the future. And oh Lord, I th through that knowledge of us, I pray you'd speak to us personally and individually. This morning, meet us where we're at. I also ask, Lord, that those things wouldn't consume our thoughts or our emotions today. Lord, that we would be waiting upon you to speak to us. That you take away the distractions as we lay them at the foot of the cross and trust in you today as a loving Savior and provider and protector. And Lord, we desire to know you more. We trust that what we read is your word. Lord, we have all experienced it in um, profound and wonderful ways as it's made you known to us and changed us, Lord, from the inside out. So I pray, God, that that would happen again today, that we would know you more. We would know um, your will for our lives. And Lord, that we would see again the, the value and the wonderful hope that we have in you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been up here and since we went through um, uh, this chapter. Uh, last week, Curtis taught on, um, as we as Christians, not living with a victim mentality. And it was a very good study. And, um, but the week before that, when I was here, well, we started chapter 7, and I pointed out that this chapter begins a new section in this letter. It's one letter written to the early church, Jewish believers, who were struggling with, um, the, with being pulled back into Judaism and aspects of their faith in regards to, to um, the culture that they were living in um, and the, the persecution and the pressures that they were facing as a result of being followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, an author is writing to them in this one continuous letter, but in this section, chapter 7, uh, a new thought is being brought forth as we're looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ being superior. And we've seen other cases of the superiority of Jesus in comparison to the, the law, to Moses, to Abraham, to angels, all of these things as this case is being made. And now we're looking at the priestly ministry of Jesus. And chapter 7 began by making the argument that the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is according to the order of Melchizedek, is superior in its order. And we know that the Hebrew people lived with and under the order of the Levitical priesthood. They ministered as God's priests through the Old Covenant, through the Mosaic Law, through the sacrificial systems. But this new order, which is being referenced here in regards to superiority, the thought process is that it's superior in quality, it's superior in value to those who partake of it, and it's superior in regards to its natural characteristics because of the very person of Jesus Christ. And so, in light of this, the Old Testament encounter at the beginning of chapter 7 between Melchizedek and Abraham that is documented for us in Genesis chapter 14, it's referenced at the beginning of this chapter as some historical evidence 
<clears throat> for the superiority of Jesus. And in doing so, we're shown that um, Melchizedek, um, who blessed Abraham, was shown to be better than Abraham. And Abraham, who tithed to Melchizedek, was shown to be the lesser than Melchizedek. And this point was made to support the fact that the priestly order of Melchizedek is better than the priestly order of the Levites, who came down through the loins of Abraham. And so to support this claim, what we know is that there were then two additional things brought forth, and they were these characteristics of Melchizedek that are spoken of in Genesis chapter 14. And they're described here in, in um, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, telling us that Melchizedek uh, was unlike the, priest, the Levitical priest because he was both a priest and a king. And we kind of went into that into detail and looked at those things but a priest and a king more specifically it says who was like the son of god who we know jesus is the king of righteousness the king of peace the true king of righteousness the true king of peace and according to verse 17 if you look here at this chapter 7 a, a, a priest forever is what we're told according to the order of Melchizedek. so now as we can as we continued also into chapter 7 what we saw is that historical argument that was being made, which was involving Melchizedek, then transitioned into a doctrinal argument. There were many aspects of the superiority of Jesus Christ in his priestly ministry being brought forth. I said there's the historical and the doctrinal, and then we'll eventually get in chapter 9 to the practical. But the doctrinal argument brings forth to us these betters, okay? The reason for why Jesus is superior and why it's better. And so we looked at Last week, at the end of our discussion, um, the second better, and there's a third in this chapter, we're going to look at it here in just a little bit, but the, 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 the second better, which is highlighted to, to uh, illustrate this purity, and it was the, the first was a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus, in his priestly ministry, offers to us a better hope by which we may draw near to God. And that's what we concluded with. And as we close out this chapter now this morning and look at verses 20 through 28, we see the third better that's mentioned here. And, and, and this is our focus. And the focus of this third better is a guarantee of a better covenant, a better relationship that we enter into with God, a better covenant, a better means. And before we begin to look at this guarantee of a better covenant, I think it's good for us to consider exactly what a covenant is. Most of us don't operate in that covenant way. I mean, in our marriage relationships, we do. It's a sanctified, holy thing established by God. But even the marriage covenant has been perverted by the world as it is looked at as a contractual agreement. And that's not the way that God ever set it up. And, and we enter into all kinds of contracts uh, as, as individuals, uh, when we, we buy cars, we buy houses, you know, there's contracts. When we, when we get our phones, we have to enter into a contract. And, and so we're very familiar with that contract mindset. And the temptation might be to look at this covenant in a contractual way. And, 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 and that's wrong to do so. Because here's the reason why. A, covenant is, a, a contract is nothing like a covenant. Nothing. Nothing like a covenant. Why? Because a contract is a legal agreement between two people who are looking to get something from one another, foundationally speaking. A contract is a legal agreement 
where two people are looking to get something from one another. And that's why marriage, the way God established it, is never to be that way. Furthermore, a contract is an if-then agreement where two people agree that if one person does this, fill in the blank, whatever it is, then the other person will do that. Again, fill in the blank. However, a covenant is much different in that it is a spiritual agreement between two people who are looking to give to one another for the betterment of the union. Okay, They have the mindset where they go, this is better for us, not just me. And so a contract is an agreement where my needs are put first while a covenant places the needs of the relationship first. And in covenant, the good of the relationship comes always before individual needs. And that's often where we get off, off track in the marriage relationship is, is we see it as, hey, what about my needs? What about my needs? What about my needs? Furthermore, a contract is self-serving. Well, a covenant comes with this. Listen to it. An unlimited responsibility towards the good of the relationship. A covenant comes with an unlimited responsibility towards the good of the relationship. And think about that in, rela in relationship to this new covenant that we have entered into by faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at it like this. Whenever I have the opportunity to do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, um, one of the things that I always ask people is, what do you think you're responsible? What percentage of the marriage relationship do you think you are responsible for or do you think that you will be responsible for? And it's kind of a trick question because from the world's point of view and in our mindset, we often think, well, it's 50-50. If I do my part and the other person does their part, then we'll all be good. But that's contract. That's an if-then thing. And in covenant, it's not that way, right? In covenant, it's an unlimited responsibility towards the good of the relationship. And it's a place, especially in the marriage relationship, where we are committed and have committed to 100% of the responsibility. In, in traditional wedding vows, what we say that, you know, to love and, and, and honor until death do us part, whether in sickness or in health, right? All these things that we, 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 we agree to. And the idea behind that is even, even if the other person can't, I will. I will. And more importantly, listen to this. A covenant is a pledge that two people into, enter into as they make a perpetual, per, perpetual promise to one another. And in regards to the marriage relationship, we know that it's until death do us part. But in regards to the covenant that we enter into with God, it's for all eternity. And that's what we're going to look into. It's a perpetual covenant that God gives 100% to for all eternity. And so with that, let's, let's start actually in verse 18, okay? We're going to use these verses to transition into the next chapter just for or into the end of these verses just for some context it says speaking about jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, it's for on one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect on the other hand there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to god and in as much as he Jesus was made priest without an oath. And then it's again speaking about the Levitical priesthood, for they, contrasting this between Jesus' ministry as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and the Levite priests, you know, the descendants of Aaron, he says, For they have become priests without an oath. But he, Jesus, with an oath by him, God, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. 
You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us. For such a high priest was fitting for us. If you underline in your Bible and highlight, please do that with that. For such a high priest is fitting for us. And if your neighbor doesn't, do it for them. Reach over and underline in their Bible for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the, but the, word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Amen. And so this priesthood of Jesus, as we continue on and look at the superiority of Christ and the better, the next better of the new covenant, we see that the priesthood of Jesus Christ of the order of Melchizedek was sworn with an oath, a pledge made by God himself, God the creator, the sovereign king of kings, the great I am. And this oath that God has sworn referenced here in verse 21 is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. And this unrelenting oath, I love that descriptive language about God's oath. He's unrelenting in it. He will not yield in it. Nothing will change his mind regarding this oath that he has made. This unrelenting oath confirms to us that Jesus is the high priest of the Most High God according to the order of Melchizedek. And it is as chapter 6 Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 says, think about it, God's oath, God's word. It says back there in in Hebrews chapter 6, it's an undisputable and undeniable promise that we can put our hope into as an anchor for our soul to hold us firm. Why, it says there in verse 19, because it is impossible for God to lie. And so with this understanding, we should recognize that there is another difference being outlined or described for us between Jesus and the Levitical priesthood for us to consider. And as verse 22 tells us, we see here that by so much more, not just by more, but by so much more, meaning so much more than the Levite priest could ever possibly be or do, Jesus through the oath that God has made has become the, the guarantee of a better government. And I want to stop for a minute and say, look at this as far as application, because we don't operate under the Levitical priesthood. You know, some of us here were raised Catholic. I was, and, and, and there was a certain priesthood there. It's of man. It's not of God, just so you know. Um, but nevertheless, the, we don't operate in this place where we, we have earthly mediators that we struggle with where we go, well, this earthly mediator, you know, Pastor Sean, some people think that I'm their mediator. It's not true. I'm not. Jesus Christ is your mediator. But in regards to the idea of a priest, you know, the problem that we struggle with mostly is we struggle with putting ourselves in this position of priest. 
when we say that it's Jesus and this, when we think that we can stand before God or go before God on our own, on what we do or what we do not do or what, and try to um, present ourselves as holy or righteous before God. And usually, guys, that happens for us, I think, more times than not is when we sin, after we sin. You know, even though there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, when, when we are outside of that in our thoughts and in our hearts, what happens is our heart condemns us. You know, Satan condemns us. Maybe even other people come and condemn us, and we live with this false sense of understanding that what was made wrong, I need to make it right. And there's a truth to that. We just come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, and He's faithful and just to forgive us as, as He then intercedes as our, as our great high priest, right? But when we don't, when we take that, that, that position away from Christ as mediator, as high priest, and we step into that role, then we come before God in this, in this, in this figurative sense where we go, well, and this is what I was even taught in Catholic Church. It's one of the things that I, I struggle with today because of it. And, and maybe it's just part of human nature. It's like, I got to do penance. It's not just repentance. I got to do penance. I've got to do something on my own to make right the wrong. I'm going to go to church every day this month, every week this month, every Sunday. I'm going to be there. I'm going to read my Bible every morning. And, and we should be in church and we should read our Bibles. We should have these disciplines, these virtues in our lives, but not as an act of mediation where we somehow seek to be right before God. Why would we turn to anything else other than Jesus Christ? That's the idea. And for the Hebrew people, it was this temptation to go back to the Levitical priesthood. Now, we talked about these kinds of things, this, this guarantee of a better covenant, that's through Jesus Christ a couple of weeks ago. But I want to look at it in greater detail this morning because of what we're going to read in chapter 8. So listen, this covenant is be, that is being referred to, we refer to it as, I kind of already said it, we refer to it as a new covenant. There's the old and the new. And it's a covenant according to Luke chapter 22, verse 20, that has been established in the blood of Jesus, which has been shed for us. Jesus, with his own words, you know, he took the bread, he took the cup, he, he raised it up, he gave thanks on that night that he was betrayed, there in the upper room with his disciples, and he said, he said, this cup is the cup in my blood which has been shed for you. It's a new covenant that we're entering into. And furthermore, it's a covenant according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that gives us this promise of the forgiveness of our sins and the eternal salvation that we have received as a work and a gift of God as a result of our faith in Christ, not as, as a result of our own works, right? It says there, lest we boast grace and faith. And this new covenant, as we are talking about it, Think about it, it's fundamentally different than the old Mosaic covenant because the old is based upon keeping the divine laws of God and the practice of the sacrificial system. It's the same thing that we kind of revert to even though we're not under it. We, 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 we glean from it and try to, 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 to do this if-then relationship with God. We want to be in contract with Him. God, if I do this, then you'll do that. But there's an inherent problem. There's, there's a problem inside of us that, that makes this old um, insufficient. But this new covenant, however, this new covenant, which we see, it, it's not based on any if-then. It's based upon our faith in Jesus 
who is the sinless Son of God. It's our faith in Jesus who is the sinless Son of God and in the work that He did for us through the sacrifice of His own life. And listen, this is the foundational reason. This is the foundational reason for why the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. And when we ended our study a couple weeks ago, we briefly went through a list of the reasons for why it's a better covenant. But we need to take note of the fact as we read here in context now that this New Covenant, which is fundamentally different than the Old, it would not be better if verse 21 did not tell us that God has given His oath and that Jesus is a priest of God of the God Most High forever. And think about it. The reason for why, the reason for why this is so important is because a covenant is only as good as the ability of the people who enter into the agreement, their ability to, it's only as good as their ability to keep the conditions within the agreement. Right? In the marriage relationship, we are in covenant and we give ourselves wholly and completely to one another and only to one another. And yet we see in the marriage relationship that often that covenant is broken, right? Because of the inability of the people to keep that covenant. But yet God here has given his oath. In other words, like I said, if one person breaks the term of the agreement, then the agreement is no longer in fact. So in regards to the new covenant, which, by the way, has already been established by us, is wholly based upon the works of Jesus, right? God intervenes and says, I'm going to do this. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But it's completely established on the works of Jesus. We see that God, through this, who is faithful to His Word, He's sworn an oath. An unrelenting oath. Something that He, according to verse 20, had never done with the Levitical priest, um, with the order of Levitical priest in verse 21, saying that Jesus is His high priest, the mediator of this covenant forever. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is forever making intercession for us. Hear this. Jesus is forever making intercession for us. He's forever mediating this covenant. When every minute, when every hour, when every day of every year. And God has sworn it. He says, you can take my word. I've sworn it. And because of this, verse 25 makes it clear that Jesus, because of this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Meaning perfectly and completely to save those who come to Him, to God through Him. I love this. The Greek word that's translated here is the word, um, the word for, to the word save is this word sodizo. And you've got to understand something when you come to the Greek language. It's, it's, it's um, different than our English language. And like in, that, in the verbiage part of the Greek language, there are different tenses. There's a past tense, a future tense, a present tense, and there's actually what they refer to as a, as a perfect present tense. And, and um, in regards to this word save, so dizo, it's written in the present tense, in the perfect present tense. And what that means is that Jesus who is alive is actively saving. He saves those who come to Him and He's actively saving those who come to Him. And as our high priest is right now presently interceding on our behalf in the throne room of God. Here's the reason why. Today I need more grace than I, than I needed yesterday. I needed more of it today. And I probably need more than I got yesterday anyway. But 
more of it in both aspects. Why? Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm still a sinner today. A sinner saved, actively saved, presently saved, currently being saved by the grace of God. And so what that means is he's right now presently interceding on our behalf in the throne room of God, meeting the needs that we have. And in light of these things, verse 26, look here, it says, I told you to underline it, it declares that such a high priest was fitting for us. In other words, I don't know about you, well, I do know about you, but I'll speak for myself. Jesus and I, we make a pretty good match. You know, in your marriage relationship, God brought you together because he said, this is a match made in heaven. And it doesn't always feel like that, especially with two human beings who are flawed. But I know, my wife and I have been married for 30 years, and I've come to realize that, that she is fitting for me. But more so, Christ is fitting for us. He's fitting for us. He is everything we are not. Think about it. He is everything we need. Think about it. He is holy, it says. He is harmless, it says. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners and therefore worthy to be our guarantee. Our guarantee. And so as we move on to chapter 8, it's easy to see that this priestly order of Melchizedek is far superior to the priestly order of Aaron or to any other priestly order that we might try to establish as we have relationship with God or try to have relationship with God outside of the, the, the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, right? And, and this point has been proven historically for Abraham honored Melchizedek above Levi. It's been proven doctrinally because Psalm 110 verse 4 undeniably states that God created a brand new order of priesthood. And, 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 and we see the practicality of that. Why? For no one except Jesus Christ could ever qualify to be our high priest. In, in, in regards to the needs that we have. That's why the Bible tells us that there is no other way for which man to be saved but through the name of Jesus Christ when we call upon him in faith and enter into this new relationship, this new covenant. And so there's no need for us, guys, listen, there's no need for us to look beyond Jesus. No need. No need for us to look beyond Jesus. Why do we strive in our flesh to do that? We've got to believe what we're being told here. It's truth. There's no need for us to look beyond Jesus. He is all that we need. And I want to tell you right now, I got to watch the Jesus Revolution uh, movie that has come out. Uh, it accounts the beginnings of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith and a man named Lonnie Frisbee and Greg Laurie is kind of one of the center of it. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Riverside, California. And the Jesus movement began in the 69, in 69 and 70, somewhere around there. It wasn't exclusively to Calvary Chapel, but there was a great birthing of it in that area. And, and what I saw in that movie literally brought me to tears because what I saw there is I want God to do that in my life and in our fellowship. Um, But I'm here to tell you is if we're not living in this place where we believe that Jesus is all that we need, and if we are telling other people anything other than that, it will never happen. Because that, any other message other than Jesus is all that you need puts people in bondage. It doesn't set them free. Let the enemy put people in bondage. Let Jesus put, set us free. 
And may we welcome the world. May we welcome sinners who are still lost in their sin into our church and say, man, Jesus has got what you need. He's fitting for you. There's nothing else in this world, nothing else in this life that satisfies like Jesus satisfies because nothing else is fitting for us. Everything else is a cheap, awful, deceptive imitation. And the world is out there buying it. And they're imprisoned. And they're seeking and they're searching. One of the cool things that I heard, I guess in one sense, is that not since the 60s has psychedelic drugs ever been used in the quantities that they're now being used again today. We're legalizing them, in case you haven't noticed. There are more people who smoke marijuana on a regular basis than people who smoke cigarettes. Very similar to what's going on now is what was going on in the 60s when God poured out His Spirit in a time when the church said, it's all lost, and God said, just wait and see. And He took people who the world thought was lost forever without hope, and He poured out His Spirit and said, come and receive My Son, and their lives were changed. We, we look at the 60s, people, we look back and those of you who were participants in it, we, we, we see it as the, the sexual revolution took place, right? Well, people are deeming this era as a sexual revolution as well. It's just a different form of perversion, something that takes place outside of God's plan. And we can't look at it with eyes of condemnation. We're not called to be ministers of condemnation, we as the church are called to be ministers of God's grace. To invite people in to receive Jesus Christ and be partakers of this new covenant that you and I have also entered into and let God change them from the inside out. So in chapter 8, we read on. As I'm getting a little off track here. Kind of on track. It says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle of the Lord, which, of which the Lord erected and not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus Christ, right, also have something to offer. And we know that he does and he did for us. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. He says, that's already being taken care of. By the way, that's not what we're a part of. Anyway, he says in verse 5, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Here it is, which is established on better promises. And again, I say amen. A better covenant that's established on better promises. And here in verse 6 that I just read and highlighted, it sums up what we just read in a clear way, saying that this new covenant is better because it's established on better promises. The promise that the new covenant primarily is guaranteed by Jesus. He's the surety of it for us. By his work and by his heavenly intercession. Not just his birth, death, and resurrection and ascension, but, but, but now primarily 
through his intercession after he has ascended, where he's now seated at the right hand of God. And this is what we're being pointed to in verse 1 as a summary to the previous arguments that have been made there in chapter 7. And so, the new covenant has a superior priest, and according to what we now read in verses 2 through 5, the new covenant is also superior because of the place, think about it, because of the very place where Jesus is now at, mediating and interceding for us. And we know that Jesus mediates as our intercessor from heaven. He has a heavenly calling, a heavenly ministry, where he's now seated at the right hand of God. In fact, I think it's interesting to remember, as we look at this in a contrasting way, as this letter is doing this for us, that Jesus, as we read a couple of weeks ago, right, being from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi, he never ministered in the holy place of the earthly temple like the, high, like the Levitical priests did. Nor did he minister in the holy of the holies like the high priest who descended from Aaron did. And we know that Jesus did a lot of ministering while he was here. All throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Israel, and, and, and even into the court of the temple, but never in the temple. And I think these things are important because it further proves the superiority of the new covenant as it, as it is something that always was intended to be and always will be ministered from heaven, which we are told here is the very, it's the, it's the real deal. It's the true tabernacle of God. It's the place where God is and not from earth where the temple, according to verse 5, was only a copy, a shadow of the original heavenly tabernacle. And you go, well, it's making a big deal, you think, maybe out of nothing. But think about it. This idea of having access to the original is rooted in the thought that it's always better to have the original than it is to have a copy of something. Think about it like this. A copy is never the exact same as the original or as good as the original. If I was to offer you this morning a copy of the Mona Lisa or the original, which would you want? right you see think about it this is why we pay money to go to museums i'm not a much of a museum guy but <laughs> we pay money to go to museums why so we can look at the original pieces of beautiful and historic art that are protected by high levels of security right and this is why we all keep the original documents of important pieces of paper like wills and birth certificates in safe and in secure places as there is great value in these kinds of original documents right and even though we have pictures of our loved ones who have moved away or have passed away it goes without saying does it not that their presence is better than just looking at a photo you know we have technology today it's like for like when my spouse goes to disneyland or disney world because that's her thing i don't really care to go um and i have pictures on my phone of her at my house and and i can look at her picture and she can even facetime me or other kinds of zoom meetings or whatever and 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 i'm happy to see her but you know what i want the original i want her coming back i don't want her to be gone and just have her picture and go oh i love you so much right we want the original it's better in every way. And so in regards, think about it now, to the earthly tabernacle, the building and all the things that were in it that the, the, the Hebrew people highly revered, they were just copies of what was in heaven where Jesus is now at. 
And so think about it. For Hebrew people, in the context of what we're reading now, this meant that going back to the Old Covenant and forsaking the New Covenant that had been established in the blood of Jesus, the great high priest, it meant forsaking the realities of heaven for earthly imitations. And when we try to sidestep Jesus and put ourselves in that that place of priest, the order according to Sean, here I am, God, I'm just, it's just a cheap imitation. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not even a good copy. It's a real bad copy. To replace the realities of heaven for something that is only an earthly imitation. So how much greater is it? I ask you, how much greater is it to have a heavenly high priest who is now ministering in a heavenly sanctuary than it is to have any kind of earthly priest who can only minister from the earth so much better so much better a heavenly high priest who has as it says here he has come with a sacrifice he has presented himself as a sacrifice for us a heavenly high priest who not only has presented a sacrifice for us but a heavenly high priest who lives forevermore to make intercession for us what is it that means what he's saying to you is, is the purpose for why I now live is for you, is what Jesus says. You're the reason why I'm here. You're the reason for why I'm in the throne room of God, to make intercession for you. And so we continue on with these promises, right? Verse 6, but now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, and as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And so these better promises, as we read on, for if that first covenant had been faultless, pay attention to this really closely here. For if that first covenant had been faultless, speaking of the old, if it had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But there was a fault. But what was the fault? The fault wasn't in what God established. Verse 8, the fault was with them, those who entered into it with God. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. This is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. When I, God says, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So in the remaining verses of this chapter, there's this greater list, literally four additional superior promises, and this is what is being detailed for us. And these verses contain, I think, the key argument of this chapter in that really this is what it's, it's leading us to, is that, that, that the promises of the new covenant are far better than those of the old covenant. And think about that logically. If the new covenant has better promises, why would we want the old? right? And so the author goes, here they are. Here's the better promises. So the logic that we're being asked to follow is this, is that if the priesthood of Jesus, which is based on better promises, must be a better priesthood, 
And it is. That's what we're looking at. And the first of these better promises that we are partakers of as a result of this new covenant as we put our faith in Jesus Christ is found in verses 6 through 9. And I'll sum it up with this. It's the amazing promise of God's grace. That's a better promise. God's grace. Grace is the Hebrew word kanan or the Greek word charis. It's defined as this, the state of kindness and favor towards someone with a focus on a benefit given to that object. There's many other ways to define grace. I don't want to go into that today, but I'll say this. Grace is what God does because he is gracious. Grace is what God does because he is gracious. And every action of God towards us involves his grace, is an act of his grace. Think about it, his creation, his providence, his conviction of our sin, the gift of his salvation, his equipping us through the power of the Holy Spirit, his saints equipping us with the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit for this life and also for the life to come as an act of his grace, the future that he has prepared for us. And all this is due to God's grace. In light of this, we must take note of in this chapter, as I highlighted it, emphasized it as I was reading through it, of the I will statements that are made six specific times in verses 8 through 12. And we should take care of this because this I will is God's grace. Grace is what God does for us. And God says, I will, I will, I will. And nowhere in here in this new covenant does God say, I will if you do this. There's no part of that in there. It's just God, I will. God, I will. He says it over and over and over again. And when we consider the old covenant, we understand that it was a yoke of bondage that demanded perfect obedience. God said, keep my commands and you will be my people and I will be your God. It's different. It's different than what we read here. But the New Covenant emphasizes what God will do for His people, not what we must do for Him. And so when we consider the Old Covenant in light of the New Covenant, we see that this. We see that God, God, first of all, doesn't find fault with the covenant itself, but with the people. And this is what we read of in verse 8. Think about it. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. It's of God. It's holy, it's pure, just like God is. It's spiritual. But it says that men are carnal. We're sold under sin. We're the problem. Not the covenant. We're the problem. And in Romans chapter 3, verse, or Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it makes it clear that the law was weak through the flesh. In other words, the failure of Israel could not be blamed on any weakness in the Old Covenant, but, but on the weakness of human nature. Think about that for just a second, because that applies to us today. But here's the hope. What we're told is that in the place of human, in the place of human fa- failure is where the grace of God steps in. That's what we see with the New Covenant. In our weakness, in our failure, in our rebellion, in our unrighteousness, in our carnality, God says, in your weakness, I will show myself to be strong. In the place of human failure, the grace of God steps in. Every minute of every hour of every day of every year. 
through the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. In, law, in, in that what the law could not do because of man's weakness, God accomplished through the work of the cross. And by that, he established a new covenant, a covenant of grace, guys. Can we not live in that place? Can we not today just take the freedom that God's given to us and go, enough with everything else. I'm going to live here in the love and the grace of God. It's enough. And so we have the promise of grace as a result of the new covenant, the I wills of God. And according to what we read here in verse 10, we also have this promise of the interchange. Listen, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, where we're told that Moses received the old covenant from God, right? The laws from God. We are told that God with His very finger wrote on these stone tablets, right? The very finger of God He wrote on stone tablets. But the new covenant is written by the Holy Spirit on human hearts and human minds. God goes, <laughs> we're not writing it on stone anymore. We're going to write it on your heart. We're going to write it on your mind. This work of God, hear this, is what changes us from the inside out. This work of God is what changes us from the inside out. It transforms us. The Bible says old things pass away and all things become new in Him. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. And we read about this being changed from the inside out, this work of this writing of God He does on the inside in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17-18, through which says this, Now the Lord is Spirit. Hear this, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Again, we strive. We strive in our flesh. We try to modify our behavior and, and oh, I just got to do good and I'll got to do that. And we get focused on the, 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 the things that we should and should not do. And what we're being told is, is that's highly inferior. It's impossible to do the work that needs to be done. It's through relationship with Jesus Christ. We enter into this new covenant through our faith, our relationship with Jesus Christ, and God changes us then from the inside out. What must we do to do the works of God? Believe in Him whom He sent. No yeah buts that follow. That's it. We can't focus on the outward things. It never brings forth a lasting change. At best, it makes us like the Pharisees who look good on the outside but are full of dead men's bones on the inside. And the point is that an external law can never change a person. Therefore, it must be part of who we are in order to change our, our behavior. And, and we're so susceptible to this kind of thinking because we have a bunch of Pharisees in our government who think that the creating of more law after more law after more law after more law is going to bring forth some good in societal change. Have you seen it yet? No. I don't care how many laws our government makes it's never going to bring forth good inside human beings. That's only something God can do. And the same, the same truth of, 
of, of, of not being able to change by, by, by laws, by external laws were put forth by God with the giving of the Old Covenant. It was. And we see this, think about it, from what we even read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which talks about our heart. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But the problem is human weakness, right? We're weak. We're frail. We fail. And where we do not have the ability to implant God's will, God's way, or God's commands into our hearts and into our minds. This is why the new covenant with its better promises of an interchange is better. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it details this for us saying, listen, there is there now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His Son, His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. And He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. But how do we walk? According to the Spirit. So we have the better promise of God's grace. The better promise of interchange. And we have... According to what we read next in verses 11 to 12, the promise of sins forgiven. That's a hopeful thing, and I'm probably stating the obvious, but in light of this, it needs to be said that in regards to the, the law and the old covenant, the, the, there is no forgiveness under the law. It was never intended to be a means by which our sins could be forgiven. It was not given for that purpose. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, he speaks about this. He says, therefore the deeds of the law... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No sins will be forgiven. Why? He says, for by the law is just the knowledge of sin. It was given to let us know, to show us our need of a Savior because we are sinners. Furthermore, the Old Testament sacrifices, they only brought forth a remembrance of sin. Every year, year after year, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice as a reminder that I am just a sinner. It never brought forth the remission of sins. But through the, fa- through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin is freely given to everyone who will call upon Him. And maybe you've heard that for the first time in your whole entire life today. And it applies to you as well. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made on your behalf, His sinless perfect life in exchange for yours, the forgiveness of your sin is freely given to you if you will call upon Him today and enter into covenant relationship with Him. He invites you. He wants you. He loves you. There's no condemnation for you in Him. And here in verse 12, we're told that God who is merciful towards our unrighteousness, our sin, and our lawless deeds as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, He says, by the way, I'm going to remember Him no more. We don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, I try not to do that, but I got a whole bag of sinful things that have been committed against me that I kind of call upon at times and go, when I'm sinned against again, and go, you always do. Right? God's not like that with us. 
This phrase, remember no more, simply means that God does not hold our sin and unrighteousness against us. And so because of this new covenant, we see that God deals with us on the basis of grace. Amen. On the basis of mercy. Amen. And not not according to law or merit. And so we can rest assured that our sins have been forgiven. It'll never be brought back up before us again. Matter of fact, it says it's been settled for all eternity. There's no end to it. And the promise of the forgiveness of our sins and the last of the better promises, the fourth better promises as a result of this new covenant is this promise of eternal blessing. In verse 13, it says, in that he says, a new covenant. A new covenant, he says, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, again, let's go back to the context of what we're looking at here because it's important. We need to remember that at the time when this letter was written, there were Jewish believers as the nation of Israel as a whole still practicing Judaism. They were um, still being governed by the old covenant. Okay, it was in place at the time that this letter was written. In fact, the temple was still standing. The Levitical priests were still offering their appointed sacrifices. And because of this, we could probably reason, I, at least I do, that, 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 that those who were devout Jews probably thought that these Christians were foolish. These Jewish believers were foolish to, to abandon such a solid religion, Judaism. For a faith that seemed intangible. What do you mean just put faith in Jesus? Think of the things that I can do, the things that I got to do. But what the unbelieving Jews did not realize as we read here, think about it now, it's profound, it's prophetic, that their solid, quote-unquote, solid religion had grown old and was about to vanish away. And not very shortly after this letter was written, historically we know that in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans and the temple and the city were both destroyed. Consequently, the Hebrew people have never had a temple or a priesthood to serve them since then, to this day. And so we see that what was growing old as it was being presented here to them was ready to vanish. Aaron, if you want to come up, we'll end with this. However, hear this. The new covenant does not vanish. It does not fade away the new covenant brings eternal blessing and back in hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 it tells us that jesus who is the mediator of this new covenant is the author of what kind of salvation eternal he's the author of the eternal salvation that we become partakers of not only that it says he's the author and the finisher of our faith he's the captain of our eternal salvation and if you look over to hebrews chapter 9 we'll get there next week verse 12 also says that through his sacrifice he has obtained for us a redemption an eternal redemption in light of this we 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 conclude and rest assured that the new covenant which we have become partakers of cannot get old and it can never disappear and all of these things are wonderful They're spectacular. They're amazing. And we have put our faith in Jesus have become partakers of these. We have this truth, this assurance, this hope. But I'm telling you right now, if you're here this morning and if you never put your faith in Christ, this is not for you. 
You don't get this without coming to Jesus. And He is speaking to you this morning through His Word, calling you unto Him. To you personally, individually, to call out to Him, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, and to receive the gift of His salvation that He earned for you, that He purchased for you with His own blood, this blood of this new covenant through His death on the cross. And all of this is for you. You can put hope in it. You can trust that it, it won't let you down. You can trust that it won't fail you. It won't fade away. You can trust that God will deal with you in mercy and in grace. You can trust that God will come in you and do a change in you that you have been trying to bring forth on your own and have yet failed over and over and over again to do. So I, I ask you this morning, if this is you, put your faith in Him. Allow Him to be your great high priest. Allow Him to be your Savior, your Lord, your friend who loves you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You, God, for these truths. Thank You, God, for this hope that we have received in You. And I do pray, Lord, right now for anyone here who has yet to enter into this covenant relationship with You, through faith in Jesus, that they would call out to you, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to be true to them in their heart and in their mind, and that, Lord, they would know that these promises are for them too. Lord, for those of us who have already